Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Momentum Podcast, powered by Duckett Lab Dental CPAs and Advisors. Jared Duckett back at you with another episode to help you get better. And guys, continuing on the series, practice transitions, everything you want to know about practice transitions in this six-part series. And we've got my good friend Rob Montgomery from the law offices of Robert Montgomery on with us. You probably know him better as yourdentallawyer.com. So Rob, appreciate you jumping on here, man. Jared, it's great. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting about dental practice transitions here. Yeah, I love it. No, I said this on a couple other episodes, but when I was thinking through this six-part series, you know, you immediately came to mind. You know, I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years. You work with a, I was going to say a ton of dentists. You can't be a ton, but a bunch, a bunch of dentists. Feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, but work with a bunch of dentists, just really representing them on the buy and sell side. But what I want to do today is really jump in and talk about the transition, right? And, and how you help and then common mistakes maybe that you see a lot of dentists make in the process. So just first off, Rob, intro yourself, kind of talk about how you got laser niched on um, dentistry for your law firm, and then we'll dive into some common mistakes you see. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've represented uh, dentists as long as I've been a lawyer. Uh, and as of last week, uh, firm celebrated our 25th anniversary. Ah, congratulations. Thank you, which is just crazy to think, you know, a quarter of a century. And uh, dentists were always an important part of our practice, even from early on. Uh, my first client was a dentist who had uh, a large group of practices. And over time, other people came to us and friends of his and friends of friends. And we got to know more people in the industry and just did more and more dental deals and more and more dental deals. And then next thing you know, it's like it became the exclusive focus of our practice. And we do it in most major markets around the country. We represent clients with a few exceptions, uh, the largest, most notably California. But you know, most other places were actively involved with uh, with helping our dental clients, as you said, sell practices, buy practices, buy-ins, startups, lease reviews and negotiations, employment agreement preparations, really all the stuff that, that uh, dentists need help with from a real estate, legal, uh, corporate uh, merger and acquisition standpoint. Yeah, all things dental, right? And I will say this, we say this a lot of times. A lot of people try to do it themselves sometimes, definitely on the practice transition, don't represent yourself, but also a lot of dentists try to do, I, I say smaller things, maybe the associate contracts and everything themselves internally and don't get them reviewed. I mean, don't underestimate the importance of having Rob or a dental attorney on your side to really jump in because there's a lot of minutia that goes into those contracts, Rob. I mean, you can agree with that, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, and the minutia matters, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, nobody looks at these agreements generally until there's a reason. And usually there's a re the reason is there's a problem, right? And so, um, you know, you could put a monkey could put something on a piece of paper and it doesn't matter if it never becomes an issue, no harm, no foul. But um, you really have to set yourself up to, uh, to succeed. And, and it's easy to, easy to do by doing uh, the right steps. And I'll say it too, that Jared, you know, to the younger dentists out there, people, as you talk about associate agreements or really any agreement, uh, especially agreements where we see more and more where people are uh, working with large corporate groups and they've been told that this contract isn't negotiable. You know, um, it's take it or leave it. And you know, that's not always a great thing. But even if an agreement isn't, quote unquote, negotiable, you still have to understand what you're signing yourself up for. And you don't want to find out what you signed yourself up for when there's a problem. 
Yeah, no, that's well said. So let's do this, Rob. Let's dive in. Um, again, you've worked with a bunch of dentists on the transition side. I, I am sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure you've seen a dentist make a mistake or two in this process. And it's, it's such a, it's such an important part of their entire journey, right? Yeah. I mean, we talk about our dental momentum journey. You got the, uh, the big stages, Dr. Paul Goodman, Doc Nacho talks about this all the time, you know, buying your first practice, selling your practice, huge decision. And you want to make sure that it's done properly. So let's just dive into maybe Rob, some common common mistakes that you've seen that, that doctors make when going through the process. It can be a DSO sale, you know, sale to a DSO. It can be a, you know, a private sale to another doctor, that sort of thing. But what do you see the things overlooked or just things that people stub their toe on, if you will? Yeah. And, and I think it's important to, to keep this in mind when you say that these are important transactions, you know, as uh, Dr. Nacho likes to say, you know, these are one transactions. You know, most dentists are going to do this once in their professional career. Now, some people are buy and sell practices, multiple practices, but, you know, that's, that's not the majority. You know, you, you get one crack at this and generally after you do it, you know, for the golfers out there, you don't get a mulligan on these deals. You know, you don't say, wow, that was a bad. Hey, I don't play unless I get mulligans. That's the only way I play. <laughs> Exactly. And so, you know, this is it, you know, um, and you get one crack at it. And if you haven't done it before and you're not in this profession, uh, being the legal profession, then, um, you know, you really are, are putting yourself at risk. So, um, you know, what I would say, you know, from the, the seller standpoint, one of the things that we see, and, I, and I'll tell you, I, I like to think, Jared, and for the most part, I, I can say this with, with a lot of confidence, our clients aren't making these mistakes that we're going to talk about. I'm going to talk to you about the things that could happen that I see or close calls before people came to us or things that uh, that happened to folks. And then they came to us after the fact and say, look what happened. You know, what what can I do now? Yeah. You know, and a lot of times, unfortunately, um, the answer is not a whole lot, because, as we said, you don't get to do over with these things. But I think one of the popular misconceptions uh, that sellers have with the office will start with transitioning the, the real estate. So most, uh, most of our uh, folks have third-party landlords. You know, they don't own the real estate. Right. And so they rely on a lease to operate their dental office. And when it comes time to sell the dental office, in order to maximize the value of that dental office, you need to be able to transition an office as well, right? So it's not just your practice, it's the real estate as well. And I think some people fall into the trap of, Hey, I'm thinking about selling my practice soon and my lease is going to uh, expire in a year, which is great because my lease will expire and I'll sell my practice. That's not great because whoever's buying your practice needs a lease too. So uh, letting the, not keeping an eye on the real estate, letting leases expire, not planning that aspect of things can be catastrophic because as you know, Jared, you know, if you're looking to transition a practice, without an office, where it just is what we refer to as a chart purchase, that's worth a whole lot less than being able to transition the whole package. Patients, files, records, office, staff, everything. So um, what, do you what do you recommend on that, Rob? So say you get an office that they don't own their own real estate, they lease to a, or they rent from an outside third-party landlord. Let's say they're their lease is gonna expire in a year, six months, a year, and they're looking at selling. 
do you recommend before you know they start the process, reach out to that landlord to try to get a longer lease in place? Absolutely. Two things. You want to get a longer lease, either through lease term or through renewal terms. So you right. may say, you know, I would like to have a five-year lease with two five-year renewal terms. Uh, you could maybe you have to renew it for 10 years with a five-year or two five-year renewal terms, but you want to have at least 10 or so 10 plus years in the in the in reserve when it comes to that because you know if you're going to sell it to a large corporate group they obviously are going to need that lease right and if you're going to sell it to an owner operator same thing they need the lease in the owner operator transition that owner operator is going to go to the bank to get a loan to buy your practice and more than likely um, the loan is going to be a 10-year term and that dental practice lender is going to say, well, with this 10-year uh, loan term, you need at least a 10-year lease term because we don't want to lend you a million dollars to find out two years from now, you have no place to operate the practice. Right? Yeah. It doesn't work. So um, for those reasons, you know, it's good to have that. Now, so that's the first thing, have term. The next thing is get good assignment language. So you want to make sure that you're able to assign the lease to a purchaser of your practice. And then as sort of a subset to that, and let me say this, step back for a second, you want to do it with minimal landlord interference, consent, involvement. You don't, On the assignment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You don't want language that says that, yeah, you can assign it if the landlord says you can. Like that's not, that's not good assignment language. That's bad assignment language because now you've just given the landlord a seat at the table of your practice transition. So this might be a silly, silly question. Let me interrupt, Robert. Does yeah. it, does it, are you telling the landlord, let, let's say you're in a five-year lease, right? And you're out, you're out four years into it. You got a year left and you want to go and refine the lease or get it, make sure you're in a, in a good you know, option, you've got the options, you said reserves, we get the options available. Are you telling this potential, are you telling this landlord, hey, I'm thinking about selling or just not even say that, right? Or what? what's your opinion there? It depends on the situation, okay. depends on the landlord, depends on your relationship with the landlord. Okay. From a landlord's perspective, you know, if I'm a landlord and somebody comes to me and says, I'm about to do a transaction that's going to guarantee you a tenant for the next two decades. Awesome. Yeah. You know, that's great. Now, some people might have a funky relationship with their landlord and feel like that's going to be an uncomfortable conversation to have. And that that could result in some sort of negative blowback, you know, and, that, and that's why I would say it's on a on a case by case basis. But even if you can't don't want to tell your landlord the reason for it or that it's a, that the transition is imminent. I think that anybody that's a responsible business owner um, needs to know that you know, for the long term, they have a place to operate this practice. Right. We see how expensive it is to build out a dental practice. And that's, you know, whether you're doing a startup or a relocation, you know, and the last thing you want to do is spend $400,000 or more to build out and relocate your practice a year before you sell it. Yeah. Because you will not recoup that, right? Nobody's going to look at it's a buyer and say, yeah, the practice is worth X and Doc, you put another $400,000 into this, un this move that should never have happened in the first place. Let us compensate you for that on top of that. So um, that's important. And then a sub part to that, Jared, is just because you get uh, good assignment language, you also want to make sure that, if at all possible, you are released from any personal guarantee on that lease. 
So most docs out there, when they signed their lease, the landlord said, okay, it's going to be a lease with Smiles R Us LLC, but Dr. Jared Duckett is going to personally guarantee that. That means you personally are responsible for the obligations of the tenant. Yeah. So you want to know that not only can you transition that lease, but you no longer have any personal liability under that lease because the last thing you want is to be responsible for somebody else's contract. You know, and I, I, I joke, sort of joke, but when I, I talk to clients, potential clients about this, I refer to it as kind of leaving your credit card at the bar at happy hour, you know, and hoping everybody behaves, you know, like, <laughs> right? Like nobody would do that. Like I went home on Friday night. What was the tab? I don't know. I hope, you know, hope everybody was respectful and only had that one drink I told them. Right. So same thing when it comes to staying on the hook for a personal guarantee when you've transitioned the practice. You don't want to find out a year from now that whoever you sold it to got into a dispute with the landlord about a, a leaky roof and stopped paying rent and the landlord sued them for $700,000. And guess yeah. what? You're personally on the hook. So that's a really important thing when it comes oh, to I love that example. I got a feeling some of my buddies wouldn't just have one drink on my credit card. That's uh, that's not going to happen. Well, um, good friends would, Jared. Actually, that's good right. Friends would. <laughs> Good friends wouldn't um, hit on this real fast, Rob. So we're talking about third party landlords. Mm -hmm. what, what are you looking at from a lease perspective? If you own the building, you know, same kind of thing, making sure you get look at your lease, make sure it's got good market rates, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, if you own the building, you know, you're going to negotiate a lease with the uh, with the buyer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, absolutely. You want good fair market value rent, you know, as much rent as possible. Yeah. And you also want a long-term lease, okay? Um, in this instance, the reason why is if you want to transition that real estate at some point in the future, you know, a lot of times we talk to clients, they say, oh, I'm going to hold on to this real estate. And it's going to be part of my investment portfolio. Okay, what's the exit strategy? Yeah. Can't, if you haven't sold it to the buyer of your practice at the time of that closing, who are you going to sell it to? I don't know, you know? And so there are groups out there that will purchase this type of real estate that's kind of left behind, shall we say, sure. in the course of a, uh, of a down practice transition. But those people are looking at strictly the cash flow of that lease and the term of that lease. So the longer the lease, the better the rent and the more fiscally sound that lease is. It's providing for a triple net, it's got, it's airtight, um, and then uh, that's the value. That's how those properties get valued. So a commercial property like that, an investment property that throws off income is valued based on that income. Nobody cares what the retail center down the street necessarily sold for. They yeah. care what the cash flow is on your lease. So a, an investor that's gonna buy this is going to look at, hey, if I buy this, do I have this guaranteed cash flow for the next 10 or 15 years? And that makes your property more valuable because ultimately you may have a need or a desire to sell this practice, sell the real estate rather, instead of you know it ending up in your in your estate portfolio, shall we say? Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. I, I think that's often overlooked. You know, they think, hey, I've, I own the real estate, and you're going to enter into a new lease, you know, because you got a new new tenant, if you will, as the buyer. But want to make sure you've got your ducks in a row and you're not paying yourself low and have to bump it way up to where your market. Um, dive into, let's dive into the DSO space, Rob. I mean, we've had, a, you know, several other guests on here that we've talked a lot about DSO transactions and how, 
if you've seen one DSO transaction, you've seen one DSO transaction, right? They're all different. They're all structured. Mm-hmm. They're complicated. I mean, I look at a ton of them too. They're complicated. Right. What are the mistakes you're seeing there as, um, as we're looking at DSO sale? I think let's start at just the basic principle where we see people go wrong. First main place is not necessarily even legal per se. Um, it's more of a, of a procedure problem where they have been contacted by a DSO. We refer to these as unsolicited offers and that DSO presents them with a letter of intent or LOI uh, and they don't shop that around with any other potential DSOs. And then they accept the offer in that LOI. Uh, and so that, that's a problem. Uh, you know, any, anytime you're trying to maximize the sale of your practice, you want to take it out to different potential buyers. But as you said too, Jerry, it's not just about the numbers, the purchase price, it's the structure. Some buyers, some DSO buyers are gonna hold some money back and require you to maintain certain revenue thresholds. Some of them might ask you, require you to work for three years. Some might ask for five years and I guarantee that. Some of them are willing to, or requiring even you to get equity in the DSO as part of the purchase price. Some of them are willing to allow you to have equity in your practice so to speak, we refer to those yep. as venture deals. So there's so many different flavors with this. It's like somebody showing up saying, here's some strawberry ice cream. Huh, did I want strawberry ice cream? Is this <laughs> strawberry ice cream? Are there, are there other flavors that I might like more? Just because somebody showed up at your door with a, with a strawberry ice cream cone doesn't mean you have to eat strawberry ice cream. Right? Yeah. Go out, understand what the market is, make that you know, a negotiated thing from a purchase price standpoint or a multiple of EBITDA, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment how you price that stuff, um, but understand the structure and the people. You know, if you're talking about selling your practice to a DSO that has 200 practices and has done this 200 times and they've got a track record versus somebody that just you know tripped onto the scene and said, hey, I'm going to get into the dental practice ownership world and I want to get rich by buying and selling dental practices. Mm-hmm. You ever done it before? Nope. You know, like, what is that? You know, so it, there's there's different levels of uh, expertise, experience, and a lot of times that experience and their ability to operate a profitable business falls on your shoulders, depending on how some of these these deals are structured. So yeah. working with with experienced known commodities is is an important thing. And the only way that you do that is if you avail yourself of what the options are out there and just don't accept that one unsolicited offer that comes your way. Yeah, let, let's dive deeper on this specific example if you can, because you mentioned EBITDA, and we're going to get we're going to transition that way a little bit. Is let's use an example. Let's say there's an unsolicited offer, right? So Doctor Smith gets gets a letter or gets a call and says, "Hey, I'm interested in buying your practice." Blah blah blah. Can we get some info? Or we think your practice is worth X, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When do you, as the doctor, the selling doctor, when do you reach out to legal counsel or other individuals to, to get people around you to, as like a board of advisors, right? I mean, when in that process typically do you like to see that, Rob? Pretty much immediately. Okay. I mean, I think it's good. You want to assemble your team before you get to the game. You know, it shows up at the stadium, you know, in the, in the real world, in the professional sports world, college sports, like, you got your team and you go to the stadium to play the game. You don't yeah. show up and start looking around like, well, who, who do we got today? 
you know, let's give him a call. Let's give her a call. Like, you want to come play? Like, it doesn't work that way, you know? So go into this with the right team, you know, and, and it's going to help you even before you've gotten these offers, you know, to, to know what the strengths and weaknesses are, to know what, what you can expect, talk about what the plan is, uh, and uh, to, in some cases, clean up your, your business a little bit. Maybe we're looking at the lease. Hey, we need to get the lease under control. Let's, um, and on top of that, maybe you're paying $6 a square foot more than everybody else in the, in the shopping center. Let's try to renegotiate that, do a long-term extension. Let's clean up that aspect. You know, our associate agreements, they don't look so good. You know, let's, let's tighten some of those up. You know, what are we looking like from a financial standpoint? You know, we've got a little overhead here. We can cut some fat. You know, that's, that's and, you know, unlike owner operators that talked a lot about a percentage of revenue as a purchase price, DSOs don't care about that. They care about profitability. So trimming yeah. some fat, making your practice more profitable will make it more valuable ultimately. So kind of going through that process, you know, I would say, you know, ideally you, two years before you're at the point where you're really ready to jump in. You know, can it be less? Absolutely. You know, but the longer runway you have at that, the better prepared you are to hit the market. You know, can you do it without doing it that far in advance? Absolutely. Do people do it most of the time? But if you ask me what is the, the best way to do it, it's, it's to give yourself enough time to actually properly prepare your practice to maximize the, uh, the value. But at very least, you know, if somebody presents you with a letter of intent, you have to get your own people involved. Yeah. You know? You, you know, you're, you, you can't just take the numbers in the LOI for granted. You know, you, the DSO is going to look at your practice and that's part of the process during the due diligence. And they're going to tell you what your EBITDA is, right? That's them telling you what, what your EBITDA is. It's like, you know, trying to sell your house, right? And, and letting the buyer tell you what they think your house is worth. You know, you don't do, I guess, occasionally you'll see an auction, right? But sure. that's, not, that's not, you know, what we're doing here. So, you want, uh, you want your people to look at that EBITDA number and calculate that and to negotiate that and to debate that with, with the buyer. Um, same thing from a legal standpoint, you, know, you wanna understand the structure, what are you agreeing to? Is there unnecessary risk? Or is it even what they're asking you, not what is typical in the marketplace? You know? and, yeah. uh, but a lot of that marketplace you know, understanding and awareness will come in through fielding offers from multiple buyers, you know, where you can look and say, this person's requiring me to put 40% of my purchase price into equity in this DSO that we don't even really know what it's worth versus this one showing up with all cash, you know, and, and or maybe, you know, a small uh, interest in, uh, in the selling practice going yeah. forward. So, so hit on, let's hit on EBITDA just a little bit because as you know, all EBITDA is not all created equal, right? Everybody uses this, this EBITDA, is it even a word? Acronym, I guess what it's called. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? But EBITDA could mean one thing for one person, one thing for another, one thing for another, right? I mean, yeah. do you see mistakes happen there where, you know, they're going to pay you a five times, a six times EBITDA, but it's all about the EBITDA, right? And what that number is, not, not exactly the multiplier. Yeah, well, and the EBITDA has really impacts both of those variables in that equation. You know, the higher your EBITDA from a market standpoint, the higher your multiple will be. Hmm. Now, so if a practice has 350 in EBITDA, hypothetically, maybe that's a, a five and a half times multiple. 
as opposed to if it's 550, maybe that's six and a half times, right? Yeah. Depending on the, the time and the place and the market conditions. So the, right off the bat there, that EBITDA number does you know, alter the, uh, the multiple. But even if, when the multiple is determined and that's constant, the EBITDA itself is, there's, it's not magic. You know, like there is wiggle room in that. And there's, it's up to interpretation as to what should be included, what shouldn't be. And, you know, the buyer here, the DSO corporate buyer is trying to do it in a way that's most advantageous for them. You know, they're not, they're not buying your practice to like give you money, right? They're, they want, they want benefit from this, you know, and they're trying to maximize the deal uh, for themselves. And so, you know, if, if you get, if they look at your practice and say, oh yeah, you have $500,000 in EBITDA, you know, we'll pay you this uh, six times multiple. And then you need to go back and work with your professionals and say, yeah, but you know what? We're looking at this calculation. You, you shouldn't have backed this out. You should have added this back. This isn't accurate. In fact, it really should be 600. Well, you know, if it's a seven times multiple and it's a difference of $100,000, that's $700,000, Jared. You know, that's yeah. real money, you know? And so you can't rely on what, what they tell you. And I'll say with all these conversations where you're talking about the, uh, the EBITDA calculation, you know, what, what's in the, the LOI, all this stuff is set up by people who are trying to push you into this deal. Okay. Sure. You know, I, I'm not trying to, you know, be you know, a conspiracy uh, theorist here and say that, you know, these people are out to get you, but look, you know, it's like Shark Tank, right? These, these are people that are doing this, not for the good of the profession of dentistry, right? Most of our listeners here went into dentistry because they wanted to help people and practice the profession. They are not selling their practices when they're selling them to large corporate groups, to people who are doing this for the good of, you know, of, of mankind and helping people with, with their, their dental needs, right? That's, it's a totally different mindset, right? So, you know, you have to take that, that healthcare provider hat off and realize that you're doing a business transaction with a business per, uh, person, not a, a healthcare professional. And so they are gonna to try to set this up so that it just kind of keeps rolling along and rolling along at a pace that may not be comfortable for you because for them, they've done this maybe hundreds of times. They've got the whole playbook, right? Remember we talked about a little while ago, you know, these might be one transactions for most people, right? Yeah. So they know what to expect. They know where the little traps are, where the bombs are in the deal and the documents. You don't. So, you know, it's, you're playing against a very experienced opponent in this world. The only way that you can hang is to bring your experienced team with you to help you know, counsel you with uh, through the transaction. And, you know, and, and one of the things we see too, that, you know, and we've had deals like this, Jared, where somebody gets the LOI, you know, and again, they're going to make it look really great. And like the first line of the LOI has this enormous purchase price and people just get, they get drunk on that number. They look like, that's awesome. I never thought I'd sell my practice for $3 million. Wow. That's great. And then as you read along, you know, it chips away where well, we're going to hold back this, we're going to adjust that. You need to meet this revenue milestone that you've never met before, right? If your your, your uh, practice is going to do 10% higher revenue than it did ever, you know, like in order to have, meet that number. It's all these like what ifs and, and, and requirements that $3 million by the time you get to the end of the document may only be $2 million, Yeah. Right? You know, and some it might be equity in this entity that doesn't have a market. It's not publicly traded. Who knows what the heck that's worth? Like, we'll give you 
we'll give you 1,100 shares in DSO R Us LLC. <laughs> What's that worth? I mean, I don't even know if that's like enough to go out and you know fill my tank with gas, right? right. Or is that like you know a multi-million dollar payday? So like you know there's there's not a lot of transparency with these things, and so you know, when it's put out in these LOIs, it, it, it's made to look purposefully really rosy. And then, you know, it's on you to involve your team to pick through that, see the potential problems, negotiate it, advocate on your behalf to protect you and to maximize the, uh, the sale price. Yeah, I think our buddy uh, Kyle Francis on another episode called those uh, DSO LOIs sometimes is very flowery, right? Yeah. You see the, see the big number up front. And I, I hear it all the time, you know, some dentists after a transition, they're like, well, I, let's use your example. Well, I got $3 million for my, uh, for my practice and it traded at eight times EBITDA. Well, maybe they really get three, they got two, like you said, because all the clawbacks are different earnups that they're not going to hit and that sort of thing. And maybe it's really not eight times EBITDA because their EBITDA number wasn't even right at all. You know, so you got to make sure this stuff yeah. is, 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 is tight and you got people on your corner. Yeah, um, because you know what? And, and I'll just conclude by saying that, that topic, the DSO is not looking out for you. You know, in no shape or form. Yeah. And they, uh, so dive in just a little bit, Rob, Let, let's go through the transition process. Okay. So you got LOI, you get a good team around you, you, you get a good signed LOI, and then you go through due diligence. Walk through, if you will, what due diligence is, how long it typically takes, what it entails, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it depends on the, on the buyer, you know, if we're talking about a, a corporate buyer, which I think is a, you know, where that is more prominent, you know, because due diligence in an owner operator deal is basically, you know, one CPA talking to the other CPA about these are the numbers we need and verifying things. With DSOs, they're going to send in a, a team of, of people to pour through the, uh, the records and essentially do an audit of the practice, I would say, is probably the best way to describe it, Jared. Yeah. Probably have better understanding of that than they. And that's referred to as the quality of earnings or QOE. And that's where they, they say, okay, we said that this, this EBITDA was $500,000 when we started this journey. Now we got we our people in here and we now we found out this, we think it's 400. You know, that, that's where that, that really comes up with that. Um, and then oftentimes that, that process is concluded shortly before the actual closing. So that due diligence a lot of times is happening concurrently with the negotiation of the definitive agreements and a lot of times, too, the DSO is already starting to transition the practice. They've got their operation people in there. They've met your office staff. Like they've got really, really, this is the ultimate example of putting the cart before the horse. So, and then you know, it's not in, uncommon at the conclusion of this due diligence process on nearly the eve of closing, when everybody in your office is planned and is aware of this deal for them to come back and say, oh yeah, it's actually a little less. And because of that, we're going to pay you less. Right. And, and that's something you just have to be careful about and be ready to have your team loaded up to say, no, we, we don't think that that's the case and negotiate that uh, for you. But um, it's a very uh, labor intensive process. I think it's, it's, a, it's a process that is very challenging to a, uh, to a, let's just say a single doc practice or a practice that doesn't have uh trusting uh, you know, uh, support staff that can respond to these requests because these are people like, like us, you know, like they're sitting at a desk doing this kind of work all day. The yeah. dentist who's selling their practice normally is doing dentistry. 
And so, you know, as these requests come in, a lot of times there's mobile requests for the same information they've already gotten. It is a very, very significant uh, undertaking from a time standpoint. And if you're trying to do this, you know, help and respond to these requests while you're trying to be a dentist, while you're trying to run your dental practice, it can be very challenging. So the, you know, the ideal scenario with that is you would have uh, support staff that's able to, you could, that you could dedicate to that. But if you're in a situation where you don't want your support staff to know um, that you're, con you're contemplating this deal and you're gonna do it on your own, you, you gotta be ready for probably a miserable couple of months. Yeah, that's well said. Talk a little bit about, a couple more questions, Rob, on, okay, so, so definitely you need individuals to help vet, I'm gonna say vet out the LOI terms, all that sort of stuff. What do you recommend on, a, a, so the seller, right? What are they looking at? What, let's say a DSO transaction, what traits, as opposed to the deal, what are you looking at as opposed to just the buyer? Like what traits, history, track record to make sure they are, I'm going to use the word legitimate. Yeah. We're going to be a good partner. What do you recommend there? What questions to ask, what to look at, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you definitely want to talk to other people that have, have sold to them. Yeah. Um, and you know, be careful about you know, the three references that are, you know, the three favorite people that may have, you know, more equity in the business than anybody else that you don't know. Um, but really try to do your homework with that and talk to people who have sold to them, find out what it's like to work for them post-closing. Because keep in mind with, with those deals, you're not selling your practice and riding off into the sunset. You know, you are selling your practice and you're going to work for three, four, five years. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that in a moment too, about just the financial aspects of that. But um, so you know, most people are going from this situation where they've owned their professional practice for several decades. You know, as I joked at the outset, I've been doing this for 25 years, Jack. I'm pretty much unemployable, I will tell you. Nobody would ever want to hire me. Like I, right. I've been my own guy for way too long, right? Yeah, you'd be terrible but, to work with, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'd be a nightmare of an employee. Um, but, you know, that's the same thing for most of our clients that are selling their practices. You're going from being that practice owner who has made all the decisions without oftentimes without having partners to even bounce it off of. And so now all of a sudden at this you know, end stage of your career, you've become an associate for the first time in a long time. And I think you need to be aware of that and be realistic and have realistic expectations going into that, what that's going to look like. But then you also want to get a sense for what it's going to be like to work for these people. And unlike you know, your first associateship, where if you didn't like it, you leave, a lot of these deals are going to require you to stay on for multiple years. And if you leave, you may be forfeiting some sort of economic benefit or have a penalty. So that can be, it can be costly. So, you know, if you're going to, going to do it and you're going to work for them, you better be pretty confident going into it that you're going to be comfortable with them and, uh, and the work environment that they're creating. I would say too, let's just back up from an economic standpoint, Jared, and yeah. you and I have had this before too. I think people also need to look at that uh, that employment agreement, that post-closing employment ob obligation that they're going to have. And you can quantify that. You know, if somebody's paying you $2 million for your practice and you have to give them a five-year employment agreement where you're making $200,000 less each year by virtue of the fact that you're an associate and not an owner anymore, well, five years times $200,000 means that you lost a million dollars over a five-year period in being an associate. So just because you're getting $2 million and then you have to come to work for five years, 
at a, at a cut rate, you're essentially that deal is costing you a million dollars. So you really are only netting a million dollars from that. So that's something that kind of sort of the, the parlor trick that people need to be aware of. And, you know, and that, that kind of speaks in part to the DSO, the way they structure this, they're buying your practice with your cash flow. Right? Basically taking the profits, yeah, taking the profits that you would have made and now that they're taking mm-hmm. and you coming and staying at a reduced rate. Your five-year example is perfect. Basically paying them or taking the million you would have had over five years and giving it to them, mm-hmm. if you right. will, to kind of buy your practice. Right. So yeah, yes. a lot of calculus going into that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, and, and so when you're looking at, and a lot of people don't have the luxury here of that, Jared. I mean, if you have a practice that's that's doing $3 million in revenue, eh, you know, your owner-operator, pool of potential buyers is pretty small. That's right. You know, you're, you're probably going to have to sell to a DSL. But once you get into numbers where, you know, it's like 1.5 million in revenue or so, like now you kind of have a foot in both worlds there. And, you know, if you're evaluating selling to a DSO versus selling to an owner operator, yeah, that owner operator may pay you a little bit less, but your post-closing requirements may be a lot less too, you know, and yeah. so you may not be required to, to work for five years. And, you know, for some people doing that is fine for other people. That's not what they want. So, you know, this, again, there's no one size fits all with this, you know, understanding, you know, what you want and what your options are and surrounding yourself with the advisors that can tell you kind of what reasonable expectations are and help guide you as to what, uh, what's going to be the most fulfilling way for you, uh, professionally, lifestyle, and economically in your practice transition. Yeah. So hit on this, Rob, let's end on this. So what, what advice, you, you hit on a bunch of different things. I've got all kinds of little stars written down here. What's, what's one of the biggest things you, a dental practice owner needs to be thinking about right now? Maybe they're going to sell in two years. Maybe they're going to sell in five years. Maybe they want to sell tomorrow. What do they need to do? I mean, you mentioned the lease. You mentioned know your numbers, all thing. What else, anything they need to start thinking about to kind of clean their practice up or prepare themselves for that transition? There's so many things, you know, I think, you know, I think the best way to summarize the jar, because I, I can't say there's one, one specific thing because yeah. for everybody it's different. But one thing that is uniform is just being aware, you know, really having this awareness of what you have, what you need to do, to package this, you know, to, so that you maximize, again, not just the sale price, but maximize the fulfillment that you're going to have after you do this deal. I mean, because selling a practice to a DSO for an extra $100,000 that makes you miserable on a daily basis for the next five years isn't a good deal. Okay. So it's not always all about the numbers. Like, obviously, I'm not going to be naive and say the numbers don't matter, but uh, there's a lot more to it. So I think, you know, I don't think there's one universal thing other than know what you're doing, be aware, check in, have the right advisors that, that can help you, talk to you about what you have in your lease, talk to you about your associate agreements. If you're not working with these people already, talk to you about your profitability, talk to you about your overhead, do all these things to kind of get you and put you in uh, in the position to succeed and then go from there. And, you know, it's hard, you know, you and I are in the same boat with this, you know, and, and so are all of our clients, you know, it, even though you know, you're a CPA, I'm a lawyer, our clients are dentists. Yep. But one thing that we all have in common are that we are professional practice owners. And yep. 
So there's a lot of things that are specific to dentistry. There's a lot of things that are specific to law or specific to accounting, right? But you know, universally, one of the challenges I think, and I have it myself, I'm sure you do. I don't think we've ever talked about this, but our clients definitely do, is operating a dental, a dental practice, operating your professional practice, and really delivering an outstanding professional product in that regard while still taking care of your business, right? Yep. And it's hard. You know, I, I could sit there and tell people like, oh, you know, you have to pay attention to your practice. Don't just worry about the dentistry. I mean, that's, you know, that's unrealistic, you know, because that's not, it's not always possible. So, you know, as you get into this stage of getting ready to transition your practice, it's important really to set aside time to work on your practice, you know, and make sure that you're doing these things and because it will pay off. And again, even it's not even necessarily like, hey, I'm going to take some extra time, a few hours a week, set aside to meet with these professionals, to meet with my team and make sure I'm doing all the right things. You know, and, and it's not that it's, I'm just doing that to be, you know, a whore to sell my practice for more. It's that, you know, when I'm, when I sell it, I want to be happy after, you know, and if you're staying on and selling it to a DSO, or if you're transitioning a practice that you've had for 30 years to a younger dentist, who's going to carry on that, that practice and the thing that you built, like it's important to, to do this, this now, because you can set yourself up for success in your transition. If you have your eye on the ball. Yeah, that's well said. That's what I love about you, Rob, working with you and your team. I mean, just prospective clients we've worked with where you're jumping on, you're just not unpacking the potential deal. You're asking so many questions. I mean, your team is asking so many questions about what that buyer, or I'm sorry, what that seller wants out of their practice. It's kind of like Dr. Abernethy said, why? You know, why do you want to sell your practice and what do you want? You guys are really diving deep to say, okay, what do you guys want? What's the ideal outcome here? And then you're explaining the deal to see if the two match each other. Because you're right, there could be, you know, maybe one practice owner is not fit to work for a DSO and be an employee for three years. Maybe it's just not going to work for them. You right. know, it's hard for most, some people to do. Mm-hmm. That's what's good about your team. You understand it in and out, but the, you just care so much about that client and that practice owner to, you know, make sure that they're getting what they want. So big time, kudos to you, man. Thank you. So Rob, just let our viewers real fast, uh, if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Really to go to our website, yourdentallawyer.com. We have a a portal on there that you could submit inquiries or questions um, uh, or our emails are there too. So you just email us directly. uh, Let us know what you're looking to do, how we can help you. And uh, someone from our office will get back and get some more information and uh, see if it's a good fit for us to work together. Yeah, that's perfect. We'll put the contact info in the show notes, but um, Rob and his team are first class. I mean, they know the industry in and out. So reach out to him. And definitely it's, and I'll say, I'll, I'll end on one thing, Rob. Don't, don't, if you're out there right now, somebody comes and buys your practice, don't just automatically eat and take the strawberry ice cream, right? All kinds of different flavors out there. It's fine to say, hey, go to a professional and say, hey, what's the strawberry ice cream taste like, Right. We get different flavors, understand what you're eating, if you will, understand what you're getting into, educate yourself, get team members involved, just like Rob and his team. I mean, amazing on the attorney side. So guys out there listening right now, like I say, every single episode, double S, double R, just share this with somebody out there who you think could benefit from it. Maybe somebody's looking for an attorney right now to help them represent on the buy, sell side. You know, Rob and his team can do that. Um, Subscribe to the podcast as always, leave us a rating, give us a review. And uh, yeah, I love practice transitions, Rob. I love this series. I could talk all day about this. Um, like I said, it just 
it's valuable info as people make the biggest decision of their lives. So Rob, I appreciate you, man. Appreciate yeah, your wisdom. Good Definitely. stuff. And thanks for all you do and, and, and you guys for, for the dental industry. It's, uh, oh. Likewise, man. Have a blast every single day. You guys out there, appreciate you listening. You have a great week. We'll talk to everybody soon. Take care.